In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, now as we close out the book of Judges, I pray that you would grant us grace today, even as you have granted us grace in days gone by, to understand very, very difficult stories and to make applications which point to your Son, Jesus Christ. Enable me, Lord, to be empowered by your Spirit today so that I am not just giving a speech, but, Lord, that I, by the Spirit, am proclaiming the Word of God. Father, I pray that you would give an attentiveness to the people where they are not just interested in a story, but, Lord, they are listening for your voice and they are responding in faith to it. So now, Lord, one more time in this book, we ask for grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me ask you please to brace yourself for what I consider to be a rather lengthy introduction and review. Pay attention to what I am about to say before I actually get into the text today, because what I'm about to say is important, and this is the last time that you're going to hear it. We've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we've been doing this since June. Today, we bring our study in the book of Judges to its conclusion, covering chapters 20 and 21. Now, it was not our goal to get through the book of Judges, but for the message of the book of Judges to get through to us. You'll remember that it is a repetitive book. By that, I mean it kind of has a Groundhog Day-flavored cycle of sin and suffering, supplication, salvation, solace, sin, and so on and so forth. You'll also remember that the book of Judges is a rough book filled with sex and violence. I would say it is the roughest book in all the Bible. You'll also remember that it is a rhetorical book. It is filled with true stories, but these true stories are arranged and penned with a lot of craft and literary excellence. And then most importantly, you'll need to remember that the book of Judges is a redemptive book. It points us to Jesus, the king. There was no king in Israel in those days, but a king was coming, and that king is Jesus. And the book of Judges is redemptive in that it shows us time and time again how God is really good to really bad people. And today's story is no exception. So, for one last time, let me remind you of the outline. Chapters 1 and 2 are the introduction to the book, and then in chapters 3 through 16, we have the judges, starting with Othniel in chapter 3 and ending with Samson in chapter 16. And now we find ourselves at the end of the book in chapters 17 through 21 in the epilogue. What is the epilogue? Well, they are two bizarre stories which show us or which illustrate what life was like in those days. Uh, throughout the two epilogue stories, the author repeats a formula four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In other words, when these events happened, there was no spiritual leadership. There was no direction. It anticipates a king. There is a king coming. That king is Jesus. But these stories speak about a time when there was no spiritual direction. There was no king in Israel. And as a result, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the second half of the formula. In other words, without direction, the people make it up as they go, spiritually speaking, uh, living by the standard of their own self-styled judgment. So think of it this way. Uh, judges is more about how each individual is the judge of what is right and what is wrong than it is actually about the order and protection that the actual judge offers to the people of God. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear in judges, everybody is a judge. Everybody makes a decision for what is right and for what is wrong. It is societal and it is individual anarchy. And brilliantly, the author in these two epilogue stories at the end 
does not render any kind of commentary or moral judgment on what is happening. Rather, the author just reports the facts, and the facts then speak for themselves, and the facts point to Bedlam. You'll remember the first of the epilogue stories, which was chapters 17 and 18. It's about Micah, the walking contradiction, who simultaneously pursued holiness and idolatry. And then the second uh, epilogue story, which we find ourselves in the middle of right now, is chapters 19, 20, and 21. And it's about a Levite who was traveling from Bethlehem in the south to his home in Ephraim in the north. And he had along with him his concubine or his mistress, and he got stuck uh, because the sun was going down in Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. Nobody showed this man hospitality except for one old man. He showed them hospitality. But when they had gone into the house of this old man, a sex-crazed mob rushed the home and demanded that the old man send out the Levite so that they could abuse him. The old man offered an alternative. He said, I'll give you my daughter and I'll give you the Levite's concubine instead. Now, this is really important because this scene is so similar to the scene that we read about in Genesis chapter 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the angels come to visit Lot. It is recorded, I believe, in the book of Judges, first of all, because it's true and it happened, but it is recorded rhetorically in order to demonstrate to Israel that Israel has now become Sodom, and specifically the tribe of Benjamin. And so, The same scenario happens in Genesis 19 in Sodom, and it happens here now in Judges 19. And it is important to note that what God did with Sodom was he destroyed everyone. Everyone ended up dead. So the old man offers his daughter and the Levite's concubine as an option. The crowd would not accept that. And so here's what the Levite does in an act of selfish preservation as as a coward He throws his mistress out the door to the mob, and they have their way with her all night, and they kill her as well. What does Levite do? Well, he chops her up in 12 pieces, and he sends one body part to each of the 12 tribes of Israel, along with a note or a messenger explaining what has happened in Benjamin. This is what we have covered already in chapter 19. Now, today, we get to chapters 20 and 21. We finish this second epilogue story in the book of Judges, and with it, we finish the book of Judges. This is the end of my rather lengthy introduction. So now we get into the text for today, and here's what I want us to do. I want us to work off of this very simple, very simple two-point outline. Point number one, which is chapter 20, is the war. And then the second point is the cost of the war. That is chapter 21. So let's get into chapter 20, the war, or a civil war, if you will. Chapter 20 is 48 verses in length, so I'm going to need to summarize some parts of it. Here's the setup. Israel has been informed through a body part gram that Gibeah in Benjamin has committed this atrocity. And so they respond enthusiastically and promptly with unity and one mind. Look at verses 1 through 3. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. That's like saying from Maine to Florida, from the north to the south including the land of Gilead, that is the other side of the Jordan River, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord. Now that phrase, to the Lord, is important. This is a solemn assembly. This is not just a get-together, but it is before the presence of the Lord, to the Lord at a place called Mizpah. And the chiefs, or the leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. How many? Four 
400,000. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, tell us, they're speaking to the Levite, tell us, how did this evil happen? So the Levite shows up there as well, and he gives his version of the story. Now I hope you remember what actually happened in chapter 19, and I want you to listen to this mixture of truth and distortions and omissions and self-serving lies that the Levite comes up with in verses 4 through 7. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. The leaders of Gibeah, no, it was not the leaders of Gibeah. It was the worthless rabble of the streets. The leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine. Would you please tell them why they violated her and killed her and not you? It is because you threw her out in the street and she died. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. Why? For they, that is Benjamin, they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Those are the facts. What are you going to do with them? Well, those are not really the facts. That is a version of it. Please notice that anytime you hear a story from one angle, even if that angle is from a reputable source, which this is not, you're going to get a version which is edited and delivered with some bias. But his story, his story convinces and motivates 11 tribes in Israel to take vengeance on the city of Gibeah. In other words, we cannot tolerate this kind of wretched behavior in Israel. Now, notice, the people who hear this, the leaders of the 11 tribes, they don't check his story. Uh, they work off of the assumption that he is telling the whole truth. And so what do they do? Well, the text goes on to say they cast lots or essentially have selective service or a draft, and they appoint 10% of the people that are there as soldiers to take care of Gibeah. But before they go to war, they try diplomacy, and here's where it starts to get really sad. They appeal to all of Benjamin, and they say to Benjamin, listen, you need to go into Gibeah, you need to get the guys who did this, that's all we want, we're, 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 we're not looking for war, just give us the guys in Gibeah who committed the crime, and this whole thing will be over. We're not looking for war. We just want the guilty parties. And surprisingly, in this had an opposite effect. Because not only did the people of Benjamin refuse to bring out the guilty and bring them to justice, but they dug in and they bowed their necks. And they assembled 26,000 soldiers in Gibeah to fight against the 11 armies, and potentially 400,000 soldiers. And among the soldiers of the, the Benjamites, there were 700 men who were left-handed, they were slingshot artists, and they could hit anything with accuracy. Now, why are we told that they were left-handed? Well, remember, most people are right-handed. And so if you are right-handed, you're going to have your shield in your left hand. These slingshot guys were left-handed. And if you're facing an opponent and they have, a, have a, a shield in their left hand, the right side of their face, their eye, their ear would be open and would be exposed. So as a left-handed slingshotist, you would have an advantage. All that to say, Benjamin was very skilled at war. The other reason I think we are told that these men were left-handed is because earlier in the book of Judges, there was a judge by the name of Ehud. He was left-handed, 
and he used that as an advantage to gain a victory over one of God's enemies. What is happening here, by contrast, which is much worse, is that the left-handed advantage is being used to defeat or to destroy and to kill their own brothers. So Benjamin bows their neck. They dig in. There's 26,000 of them against potentially 400,000. So we're looking at a basically um, disadvantage of about 15 to 1. And here's what happens in verse 18. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. That is the tribe of Judah. Remember back in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, when the conquest is about to occur against the Canaanites, the question is asked, which tribe is going to go to battle first? And the Lord answers in 1, 2, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And that is significant because Judah is the tribe that Jesus came from. About 1,300 years later, Jesus is going to be born in Judah from the land, from the tribe of Judah. Merry Christmas. But the point here is that there is a slight difference from what we read at the beginning of the book of Judges, and that is that the Lord does not promise victory to Israel over Benjamin by sending Judah up first. So they have a battle, and guess who wins? Benjamin wins. They kill 22,000 Israelites. And, and predictably, Israel is very upset. They thought that this was going to be a quick battle. It was going to be over. Surely, because Benjamin is so outnumbered, they will be defeated quickly. But Benjamin ends up winning that battle. Look at what happens, please, in verse 23. Verse 23. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. And so the next day, Israel engages in another battle. And guess who wins this battle? Benjamin wins again. And this time, 18,000 soldiers from Israel die. So they're 0 for 2, and 40,000 Israelite soldiers are now dead. Israel again is upset, and again they go before the Lord. Look, please, in verses 26 through 28. Then all of the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. And they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel prayed. They inquired of the Lord again. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? Can, can, can we just call the whole thing off? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Notice the difference here. They go before the Lord, they weep, but this time they fast. And this time they worship. And this time they worship properly through a priest, a proper priest who happens to be the grandson of Aaron, uh, which tells you, just as a side note, that this story, remember every week I tell you the book of Judges is rhetorical that is not written in chronological order. Well, this tells us that this story happens chronologically toward the beginning of the time of the Judges. And, and so the change here is this time they worship properly with sacrifices and fasting, and, and, and this, this, these sacrifices point to the gospel, and the gospel is of first importance. And this time they do it through a mediatorial priest, 
And most importantly, this time God says, when you go up this time, you're going to win. And so they go to battle the third day against Benjamin. But this time, this time, they employ an old strategy, a strategy that they used back in the book of Joshua against Ai. Uh, Hang on to that. It was the old ambush trick, and it works something like this. So they've been, they have been defeated two days in a row. They go up against Gibeah, and they pretend like they're going to fight, and then all of a sudden they pretend like they are afraid. So they start to run away. The Benjamites in Gibeah say, aha, they're afraid of us, just like they were the last two days, And the people of Gibeah, the Benjamites, start to chase them. The old ambush trick works like this. Israel sends 10,000 soldiers around the back door. And they wait until everybody in Gibeah that is a soldier is gone. Then they go into Gibeah. They torch the entire city. They kill everybody in the city. They come out of the city and they start to pursue the Benjamites this way. Here are the Israelite soldiers who have been running away, pretending as though they are afraid. Their signal to turn around and fight is when they see the smoke billowing from Gibeah, they turn around to fight. And so when they turn around to fight, they are confronting Benjamin in this direction and the 10,000 soldiers coming out of Gibeah are sandwiching from this direction, and Benjamin looks back, and they look to the front, and they have nowhere to go. They are sandwiched in the middle, and they are soundly, soundly defeated. And in that battle, 18,000 Benjamites die, and 5,000 say, I'm not going to fight, and they start to run. They are hunted down on the highways, and they are killed. 2,000 of them make it to supposed safety in a place called Gidim, where they are found and they are killed. And if you are doing the math in your head, here's the conclusion that you should come to, chapter 20, verse 46. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But it wasn't just the men who died that day. The other verses go on to say that Israel goes throughout every village in Benjamin and kills every single remaining man, woman, and child. And so you ask, is everyone from the tribe of Benjamin dead? Well, almost. Notice how many are left when we get to verse 47. But... 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon and remained at the Rock of Rimmon for four months. Somehow, mysteriously, even miraculously, 400, I'm sorry, 600 guys escape and they go basically up into a hill, a rocky territory, and they are there for four months, but they really don't know what to do. But that is all that is left of the tribe of Benjamin. Only 600 men are left. So that is the narrative portion of point number one, the war. What are the takeaways from chapter 20? Well, I have three of them. One of them is historical. One of them is practical. One of them is theological. Here's the historical takeaway. And you need to put on your thinking cap for this one. This story is an indictment against all of Israel, Benjamin included, because of the style of the attack. By the style, I mean the pretense of coming to battle, the fake fear, the ambush from behind, the fire, and the sandwich, that, that style, the, 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 the ambush style of fighting is an indictment against all of Israel and against Benjamin. 
You say, why is that an indictment against them? Because this is exactly how Israel defeated Ai in Joshua chapter 8. Exactly. Uh, Joshua commands the soldiers in Joshua chapter 8 to face up to Ai and then to retreat as though they are frightened. And then he brings an ambush in from the back and sets fire to the city. And then he crushes the opponent in a sandwich in the middle. And in the story of Ai, 100% of their inhabitants die. Now, that strategy that I just described is not morally wrong. In fact, I think it's brilliant, it's good, and it's godly. The moral problem is not the battlefield tactics. The problem is this. Pay attention. I'm going to say it three times because you need to get it. The problem is this. It's that now Israel is doing to one of their brothers what had previously been done to pagan Canaanites at Ai. Let me say it twice more. Problem is not the strategy in and of itself. The problem is now Israel is employing a strategy which had initially been designed to defeat the enemies of God, the pagan Canaanites at Ai, it's now being used to kill their own brothers. Third time, just in case you didn't get it the first two. At this point, it is so hideously bad because Israel has slipped to the point where they are now employing military tactics which are brilliant, to kill one another rather than to defeat God's enemies. And so if you are an Israelite and you get a copy of the word of God, and let's say it's 500 or a 1,000 years later and you pick it up and you start to read this, you are going to wince because you are reading a story of how brother is killing brother using a method which was designed to defeat the enemies of God. That which was once designed to give the people of God victory and celebration over enemies and rejoicing is now a sad narrative of God's covenant people killing God's covenant people. Civil war. I am an American. I am happy to be an American. I am proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. I just came from the British Isles. Anna and I were in England, and then Ireland, and then Scotland. Last Sunday morning, when I got up to preach, the pastor, in a good-hearted, good-natured way, said, sometimes the Americans get us. And he put up a picture of 1776, and then... He put up another picture, and he said, sometimes we get them, and it's a picture of the British winning a battle. And he said, and sometimes we draw, and it was the soccer match 0-0. He says, but nonetheless, here are our American friends. And so I have nothing against the British. Love the British. But as Americans, when we think about our history, we can and we should celebrate our victory over the British at the Battle of Lexington and Concord on April 1917-75. However, what is there to be happy about when we study the Battle of Gettysburg from July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1863, where the Northern Army won the battle and killed 28,000 Confederate soldiers. Uh, that is, they killed 28,000 of their fellow Americans, and in the process, the North lost 23,000 soldiers. Who actually wins when 50,000 American soldiers die in three days? You see, you have 11 tribes in Israel and one tribe in Benjamin, and you have a three-day battle and more than 65,000 people die. But I want you to consider, 
that of the 65,000 people who died, 100% of them were the covenant people of God. And I think the point of recording the battle strategy is to show Israel what they have become and how low they have sunk. Just as the story in Gibeah about the people surrounding the house and them offering up the women is a parallel to Genesis 19, and it shows Israel that they have become Sodom. Well, in the same way, I think that this battle strategy here actually did happen, but I believe it is recorded in order to show Israel how far they have sunk in that they are now killing one another. What was once a grand strategy of victory is now a sad story of self-destruction. In your unsaved life, you learned how to do war. You learned how to protect yourself. You learned how to have a bitter heart. You learned different ways to be selfish and unloving. You learned how to develop a sharp tongue. You became skilled in protecting yourself by putting others down. And now you are in the church. You are in the family of God. You are in the kingdom of God. How sad is it when Christians within the church employ methods and actions and words and strategies of war against fellow Christians and fellow church members? Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul warns, but if you bite and devour one another, he doesn't say if you bite and devour Satan, he doesn't say if you bite and devour the world, he doesn't say if you bite and devour sin, but he says if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When you win a heated argument, against a fellow Christian, you don't win. When you come up with a clever, sarcastic jab or, or retort against a fellow Christian, you're really not clever. When you post something online, even if it's right, even if what you're saying is true, when you post something online which tears down a fellow Christian, you are not building up the kingdom of Christ. You are contributing to its shame. And when you give a, watch it folks, prayer request in talking behind someone's back, you slice up their character, you're an actual enemy of the cross, even if what you are saying about them is true and accurate. This is a sad story in that a strategy used to defeat pagans is now used for the people of God to kill the people of God. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, beloved, let us love one another. Jesus prayed for his disciples, and what did he say? John 17, 21, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us so that the world, so that the unsaved may believe that you have sent me. In other words, by nature, the world does not believe in me. They do not believe that I am the Messiah. However, when the world looks at you and the world sees the love that you have for one another and the world sees that, 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 that you are one, what that is going to cause them to do, it is going to contribute to their faith and cause them to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Harry Fujiwara gives his testimony of when he was saved. He talks about how he went on a men's retreat in the fall of 2007. He said the one thing that stuck out in his mind, and I don't know if you remember this, Jerry, but he said the one thing that he stuck out in his mind is that every man was so exceptionally loving and kind toward Jerry. That caught his attention. 
John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Did Benjamin deserve judgment? Absolutely. Did God condone it? Yes, he's even the one who ended up defeating Benjamin, even as it says in chapter 20, verse 35. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. However, if Benjamin had simply handed over the guilty men, if they had not set up for war, this would have been a minor story that would have been so small that never would have even made the newspaper. It wouldn't have hit the headlines. It certainly wouldn't even be in the Bible. But because Benjamin bowed up, because they were prideful, because they would, they would rather defend injustice and, 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 and hideous acts of sexual assault because it was their kinsmen, because they refused to allow justice to prevail, a strategy was employed against them by their brothers, which should have been used in order to defeat God's enemy and not enemies and not kill God's people. Now they are reduced to 600 men. And likewise, when fellow Christians sin, they do need to be confronted, that they perhaps need to be rebuked, or even in extreme cases, they need to be disciplined publicly. But all of that is to be done in love with a view toward restoration. And oftentimes, brothers and sisters, what I see is that there is Christian attacking Christian with no love, no attempt to heal, no thought toward restoration, just a pound of flesh. What I'm talking about here is where there are factions in the church, backbiting and gossip, and what it looks like to the world. How in the world did, did Israel look in the land of Canaan in the eyes of the Canaanites as Israel fought against themselves? And how do Christians and churches look in the eyes of the lost world as we are unloving towards one another? One way perhaps to overcome this sad reality within the body of Christ is to actively love one another and one practical way that you can love one another is, if asked, to participate in the special friend ministry, for in it you will have not only camaraderie and friendship and love, but you will have a testimony of love to others. And so if you have been asked to participate, prayerfully consider saying yes. Here's the second takeaway from chapter 20. This one is practical. And that is, here we go, never make a significant decision without hearing multiple reputable accounts. Never make a major decision until you've heard the whole story. Gather as much information, gather as many facts from different perspectives as possible. Did you ever notice as you read this story who was not present to give testimony to the 12 11 tribes of Israel. You know who was not there? The concubine. You know why she wasn't there? Because she was dead. You know why she was dead? She was dead because the Gibeonites killed her. Do you know why they did that? In part, they did that because her Levite boyfriend threw her out the door. And never once does this come up in his testimony. Israel just sort of takes his word for it, and boom, a few days later, 65,000 people are dead. However, if the story had been investigated, he himself would have known that it was not the leaders of Gibeah that promoted this assault. They would have also learned that he himself would have to be held accountable for her death because he's the one who threw her out the door. I mean, it's like if you're on a highway and there's someone there and you, you, you push them out and a bus runs over them, you can't say, oh, the bus killed her. 
No, you pushed her in front of the bus. You are responsible. But that never comes up. Whenever you're hearing a story, listen closely, listen politely, and then, here we go, confirm the facts. Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Is it possible for two people to corroborate and lie? Yes, it is, but it is unlikely. So collect as much evidence as possible before rendering a judgment, especially a judgment which impacts the lives of other people. You know, when I do marital counseling, it is often the case, in fact, I might go so far as to say it is always the case that the first person that you hear, is this not true, Pastor Keith, sounds really right, and they sound like they are the victim, and they sound like they are the oppressed, and that the other party is the villain. Then you speak to the other party or you bring them together and the story is not as clear as it once seemed. Uh, that's what it says in Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Of course, the Levite seemed right, but he didn't have anyone to challenge him. And unfortunately, nobody called him into question. Now, I'm not saying that we should not believe one another and trust one another. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things. But what I am saying is, when there is a matter of significance which impacts the lives of other people, establish the facts by multiple reputable testimonies. And in fact, if you're telling somebody something and they say to you, I need to check and see what you're saying is true. If you are telling them the truth, there is no reason to fear that they will go to another source. You remember when Christ was on trial, they brought multiple witnesses against him, but they couldn't use any of them. And the reason they couldn't use any of them is because they couldn't get their stories straight. Well, the Levite was not only selfish and cowardly, he was also dishonest. And he twists the story. And that, combined with Israel's lack of discernment, caused a lot of unnecessary bloodshed. Gibeah still should have been punished, but it would have looked much different if they had slowed down and checked the facts. Number three, the third takeaway from chapter 20 is a theological takeaway, and that is that one man can do a lot of damage. By one man giving a twisted, selective, incomplete report, 65,000 people die, and Benjamin almost becomes extinct as a tribe. All of this over one man. What is the theological truth? Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned, and that man is Adam. Or as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. One man can make a big difference. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. On June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria was assassinated in Sarajevo. Do you know what happened as a result of this one assassination? It set off a chain reaction in Europe, which we now call World War I, in which 20 million people died in just over four years. That is a crazy, sad statistic. But what Adam did in his initial sin and disobedience and rebellion in eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was far worse because the sin of Adam has caused more sin and more death than any other one act or any other one man. In fact, all sin and all suffering and all damnation 
can trace its origin back to Adam's sin. And so when God, in the Garden of Eden, gave the first command, here's one thing you need to know about that. He meant exactly what he said. In 1189 chapters, when the Bible is over, God's character doesn't change. He still means exactly what he says. Spurgeon said it this way, all theological misunderstandings come from one of two places. People don't understand what happened in the Garden of Eden, or they don't know what happened at the cross. Judges 20 illustrates that one man can make a big difference for evil and destruction. Um, I'm hoping, I'm asking you to, I am expecting you to, sometime during the Christmas season, to watch It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, This Christmas season and every Christmas season. Horrible theology, great story, watch it. As you do, please be reminded that one life, one event, one story can have a huge impact. Well, sadly, in Judges chapter 20, it was one man, one event, having a huge impact for evil. Now, I doubt that you in your life will ever be able to be responsible for 65,000 deaths. But at the same time, you are capable of doing a lot more damage than you know. Remember that your life counts, that you have an influence for good and for evil. Great movie, but the truth of the matter is, you ain't George Bailey. You are a sinner. Remember that your sin impacts others. So we have point number one, the war, which is a civil war. Now we come to chapter 21 and point number two, and that is the cost of the war. It's the last chapter in Judges. The cost of the civil war is that Benjamin is now on the verge of being extinct. You say, well, what's the big deal there? Well, God calls a man named Jacob. He has 12 sons. Benjamin is the youngest. Benjamin is part of Israel. He's part of the family. And now, because of a silly vow, he might become extinct. What is that silly vow? Chapter 21, verse 1. This is a little bit of a flashback. Now, the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Uh, So there's a vow. All of Israel is saying, you cannot give your daughter to Benjamin. And and it is a silly, ridiculous vow, just like the vow of Jephthah. It's a ridiculous vow. Well, here's the problem that that vow created. Now, 100% of the Benjaminite women are dead. Uh, And there are only 600 men, uh, no women. uh, 600 men, no women, equals no children, ever. And therefore, Israel is going to be one less tribe unless they can find some wives for these 600 men. And so they come up with a plan to find wives without breaking their stupid vow. And so what do they do? they assemble and say, I've got a question. When we assembled for war and it was required that everybody come, was there anybody that happened to be absent? And they say, aha, when we took the census, we discovered that there was nobody there from Jabesh Gilead, which was about 20 miles away. And so Israel comes up with this brilliant scheme and says, here's what we're going to do. We are going to send 12,000 of our best soldiers into Jabesh Gilead, and we are going to kill everybody, every man, every woman who is married, and every child. The only people who are to be spared are the virgin women. We're going to allow them to live. And then what we're going to do with those women is we're going to kidnap them, and we're going to give them to the Benjaminite men. And they went through with it, and they were able to come up with 400 women. This is a perfect example. In fact, I think this is like maybe the most quintessential example of doing what is right in your own eyes. 
slaughtering an entire city of your own kinsmen on a technicality so that you don't break your vow. Their motive was not to judge Jabesh Gilead. Their motive was to steal and to kidnap those women. So they kidnapped 400 women. And their sordid plan works. But they're still short, 200 women. Notice what it says in 21, 13, and 14. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Rimmon and proclaimed peace to them. Hey, war is over. Merry Christmas. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women, that is the 400 women, whom they saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. So now what do you do? Where are you going to find 200 more women for these men? They come up with another plan, which is equally as sinister, but not quite as violent. They say, hey, you know, there's a big party coming up over at Shiloh, a yearly dance. And the women get together there and dance. And so here's what we want you guys from Benjamin to do. We are going to give you permission to go in and to abduct those women while they are dancing. And if their dads or their brothers were to ask, where did our girls go? Well, we're going to cover for you. And here's going to be our explanation to your fathers and to your brothers. Don't worry. We didn't break the vow because you didn't technically give your daughter to the Benjamites. The Benjamites, Benjaminites stole them. So it's all good. Where did my sister go? Oh, she was, she was kidnapped. She's gone. <laughs> but don't worry. We didn't sin against God by giving her away. She was stolen. Uh, verses 23 and 24. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number. Oh, isn't, isn't that good of them that they didn't take more than they needed? Morality from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Let's just call a truce. Everybody go home. Everything's fine. Did you get that? Israel paints itself in a corner with a foolish vow, just like Jephthah did. And in order to save Benjamin, they come up with not one, but two violent and abusive strategies in order to keep Benjamin on the map. Then everybody goes home as if nothing happened. Does it ever shock you when after you sin, you just go on in life as if nothing happened? You just go home, turn on the TV, watch the news, celebrate Christmas, no big deal. Do you see how sickening and disgusting this is? Do you see the irony that Israel repeatedly took foreign pagan wives and they never blinked. And yet they wouldn't give one of their daughters to their own kinsmen. And, and, and what, what accelerates the hypocrisy is this. I, I think this is the, the pinnacle of everything that I'm saying today. Irony of ironies. This entire episode was sparked by one woman. Well, how do you remedy that? Well, you kill 65,000 men, of course, and then you abduct 600 women. Do you see it? Israel has become the old man in Gibeah. Israel has become the Levite by saying, here are some women who are useless to us, they can serve a purpose for you. They are nothing but property. They kill their families. They kidnap them. Do you see it? Israel has become the Levite. <coughs> and everybody can now go home in peace. Benjamin gets to stay on the map through violence and deception and a technicality. Does the author 
of the book of Judges have any kind of commentary on what's happening here in this second epilogue story? Yes, he does, and here it is, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, the end justifies the means, God's law is not consulted, and the people of God are a mess. Now, for a preacher, it's pretty easy now to target Israel and to preach against them, and deservedly so. They're really bad. But if I were to be honest, maybe I have not arranged for the abduction of 600 innocent women. But to be honest, I am a sinner. And I know how to come up with schemes and gimmicks and compromises and hypocritical technicalities which allow me to sin and to do so with a clear conscience, and then I go about my merry way, and I fail to consult the Word of God. And even when I do consult the Word of God, sometimes I twist it, and sometimes I just choose willfully to disobey it. In other words, my tendency is to do what is right in my own eyes. And I am not God, but I will tell you this. If I was God, I would not have put up with Israel. I would have looked for another nation. And even more so, if I was God, I wouldn't put up with Ed Moore. The book of Judges is the life and times of Ed Moore. And it says this. This is what sin looks like. You know what else it says? Listen to me. Look at me. You need to get this. It says, this is what mercy looks like. Because when God was dealing with Sodom, when God was dealing with Ai, 100% of the people were killed. There were no survivors. Scorched earth policy. When God is dealing with Benjamin, who is just as guilty as Sodom, what does he do? He has mercy and he preserves the tribe. So as we close this book, let me share two thoughts. Number one, remember in chapter 20 how I pointed out that one man can make a huge mess? Well, that's true because in Adam all die. But let me tell you what's just as true. And that is that one man can do an untold amount of good because that same verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, for as in Adam die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Merry Christmas. There was no king in Israel, but now there's a king. There's a king that is born to you this day, the city of David, Jesus, one man, and he comes and he does a lot of good. He's born perfectly and he lives perfectly. And then for me and for all of God's elect, he goes to the cross and he dies and he pays for all of our sin. And then he rises from the dead and he's alive today and he continues to do good and he will do good forevermore and he will show mercy forevermore. The gospel is of first importance. For those for whom he died, they will forever be in heaven. So I ask, have you placed your faith in this one man, this good man who is good to bad people, King Jesus? Adam was a sinner, and so was the Levite, and so am I. But Jesus is a better Savior than I am a sinner. Last observation, end of the book of Judges. Turn, please, to the book of Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, the quintessential passage on election and predestination. Look in Romans chapter 9, verse 29. The author of Romans writes, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Benjamin was Sodom. They should have been wiped out, 100% of them. 
If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you know who wrote that? It was a guy named Saul of Tarsus in Cilicia. He later becomes better known as the Apostle Paul. Do you know what tribe the Apostle Paul is from? I'm getting chill bumps right now. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. He's quoting Isaiah 1.9. And the Apostle Paul knows his Old Testament. He knows that his tribe should have been wiped out, but they weren't. Every week I tell you that Judges is repetitive and rough and rhetorical. And most importantly, it is redemptive. Here's the long play redemption story for Benjamin. They deserve annihilation like Ai and like you and me, and Sodom and Gomorrah, but God is merciful. He spares them, taking 600 men, undeserving men, and growing them into a tribe which one day produces the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian, the greatest missionary, the most influential author of all time. How and why? First of all, how it is by God's mercy and why it is for God's glory. So I leave you with this. In that way and in countless other ways, the book of Judges proves itself to be a redemptive book for it speaks of the great Redeemer King, Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the things that you by your spirit taught us in this book. Now today, may we who are bad people rest in your good mercy, even as you showed it to Benjamin. Lord, please show it to us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.